0: This is episode 585 of the Leaving Laodicea broadcast, and my name is Steve McCraney. One of D.L. Moody's most famous quotes came after a revealing conversation he had with British revivalist Henry Varley during Moody's European crusade way back in 1873. Varley said to Moody, The world has yet to see what God will do with a man who gives himself up wholly to him. Pondering this, When Moody returned to the States, he prayed his famous quote, The world has yet to see what God will do with, and for, and through, and in a man who is fully and wholly consecrated to Him. Then Moody added, By God's help, I aim to be that man. This is the essence of the consecrated life, the surrendered life, or what Jesus called the abundant life found only in Him. But how is that life achieved? How does someone with a desire like Moody enter into and experience the higher Christian life? The answer is simple, but difficult to put into practice. The sanctified life is achieved by aligning our identity, not in who we think we are, but in who we truly are, who God made us to be. And that, according to Scripture, is a servant or a slave, that's doulos in Greek, of the Lord. Today, by looking at the life of David in 2 Samuel 7, we will see how that blessed transformation can take place. So join us as we discover the joy of abiding in Him and not striving in the flesh as we learn how to leave Laodicea behind. All right, so let me tell you what happened. Uh, I have been, a, uh, I've been crying out to the Lord and praying for a long time for him to give specific instructions on what it means. Like um, with D.L. Moody saying, You know, with God's help, I aim to be that man. And if I'm having a discussion with D.L. Moody and he's telling me that, you know, he wants to be absolutely, totally consecrated and surrendered to the Lord, my question to him would be What's your plan? How are you going to do that other than, and I'm not making light of this, other than praying more, reading my Bible more, having devotions more, and sharing Jesus with other people? Not downplaying that at all, but other than the path answer, specifically tell me, what are you going to do? What's your plan? I don't know. So D.L. Moody would then ask the guy that first said the quote to him, have you reached this higher Christian life kind of state? Well, I have. What did you do? And since we don't know many people in our daily lives or even in our culture who strive for maybe more than that, uh, it makes it difficult to know exactly what to do. So Lord, help me help the people that you have placed in our church with some practical examples of exactly what we need to do in order to experience God in a profound way. So I am just reading. This was on a... This was on Friday, actually. I was finishing up the I had finished up the PowerPoint for Sunday. What we were going to do, in case you're interested, is we were going to go through talking about experiencing or encountering God, looking at a bunch of Old Testament people quickly, and then we're going to go back to Psalm 51 and start going through those six words that I shared with you in the uh, email I sent out earlier this week. And so all that's prepared, but that's for another day. Maybe I'll uh, record it and send it to you this week, or write about it or something. I'm, so I'm I'm in Second Samuel, chapter seven, which isn't really a profound chapter. It's not. There's nothing earth shattering in it. If you'll follow it, what you have happening is, you know, Saul is gone. David now has gone ahead and taken control of the entire kingdom. When we get to chapter 6, we find out that the ark is being brought into Jerusalem, and David is dancing before the ark, just overwhelmed with how wonderful it is. And of course, David's wife is, is condemning him for doing that. And chapter 7 talks about God making a covenant with David. And chapter 8, of course, David a list of David's further conquests that God provided for him. And and then we get all the way to chapter 11, and we see the downside of David. We see this David and Bathsheba and Uriah event that we've talked about. So I'm I'm just, I'm reading through it. It's not necessarily studying for a message. And I get to chapter 7, where God Is making this covenant with David, and he answers the question that I'm really excited about sharing with you that I've been praying for for a while God, what do we do in order to be fully surrendered to you? And his response, you're going to find out through this text, is you don't do anything. Your identity changes, your identity moving from who you think you are to who you really are. And once your identity changes, then it's not anything that you do contrary to your identity. You just act within your identity. What becomes natural to you when you become the person God has called us to be? As I'm reading this in King David, I saw a whole different side of him. I saw a lot of me in his personality, unfortunately. And so what's happening is, the kingdom is at peace for a while. Uh, God has allowed David to basically conquer all his enemies. He's taken control of the kingdom. He is now truly king. And if you want to know the extent of the enemies he conquered, that's what chapter 8 talks about. And there's tens of thousands of people that are killed um, in these various battles. But chapter 7 begins this way. Of 2 Samuel it says, Now it came to pass when the king was dwelling in his house, And the Lord had given him rest from all of his enemies all around. Things were going pretty good. I got a good retirement account. Things are going well at work. I'm getting close to paying my house off. I've got a Bahama cruise coming up this summer. You know what? I'm okay right now. Not really needing God for anything. Verse 2, that the king said to Nathan the prophet, the same prophet that's going to confront him in chapter 12, and says this, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells inside tent curtains. In other words, he looks around, and he says, you know, something needs to be done. This doesn't seem right. I'm living in a really nice house, and yet the ark of God is, is you know, behind a, a, tur- uh, a curtain in a tent somewhere. I mean, that doesn't seem right you know what I need to do? I need to build God a house. I need to build God a temple. I need to build God this great tabernacle here, something worthy of who he is because I have the money and I have the rest that I'm going through that this is what I need to do. And so he goes to Nathan, the prophet, expecting Nathan to search the Lord, seek his face, and basically tell him what he needs to do. And instead, Nathan gives him this, well, be blessed you know, have a great day, just kind of blows it off like it's nothing. Verse 3, then Nathan said to the king, neither David nor Nathan asked God what his will is regarding this, but Nathan said, like I do all the time, hey, it seems like a pretty good idea, why not? Go for it. He says, and Nathan said to the king, go, do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. Meaning, everything that you do, David, obviously must be ordained by God. Because look, He's given you rest from all aside, from from all around. I mean, you face these terrible times; these other countries tried to wipe you out. You had to act like a, a sane man with an uh, insane man with the Philistines. Saul's tried to kill you. You've been on the run for years and years and years. And God has done all these things in your life. So you know what, God, you choose, and God will bless it but that wasn't God's will at all. As a matter of fact, that night, the text here almost gives the impression of suddenly that night the Lord spoke to Nathan and said, you have made a mistake. Verse 4, but it happened that night that the word of the Lord came to Nathan saying, go and tell my servant David. Now, that's the key phrase, my servant. Servant David. Okay. Um, all right. I, I got that. My servant David. Um, what, what do you want me to tell him? Well, I'm going to ask you two questions. First question is this Thus saith the Lord, would you build a house for me to dwell in? Is that something you're supposed to do? Did you forget about 1 Chronicles 22.8 8 or 28 2, where it talked about the fact that David, you're not going to build the temple because you're a man of blood? you remember all of that? Or do you take it upon yourself to think that I have asked you to build me a temple? And then he goes on to chastise him in verse 6. For I have not dwelt in a house since the time that I brought the children of Israel up from Egypt, even to this day, but have moved about in a tent and in a tabernacle. Wherever I have moved about with the children of Israel, have I ever spoken to anyone from the tribes of Israel when I commanded my to shepherd my people Israel, saying, why have you not built me a house of cedar? It's a rebuke here. You think you're going to do something good and build me a house. I didn't ask you to do that. I've never asked anybody to do that. I am sovereign. I am king. I will decide what takes place. Verse 8, now therefore, Thus shall you say to second time, my servant David. And he says this, look, I took you from the sheepfold, from following the sheep to be ruler over my people, over Israel. And I have been with you wherever you have gone and have cut off all of your enemies before you and have made you a great name, like the name of the great men on the earth. Not only that, I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and I will plant them that they may dwell in a place of their own and move no more, nor shall the sons of wickedness oppress them anymore as previously since the time that I commanded judges to be over my people. And he goes on to talk about the fact that you're not going to build me a house. I'm actually going to build you a house. And of course, he's talking about his legacy, his dynasty, talking about the fact that um one from David's line will always sit on the king, uh, or sit on the throne of the king of Israel. Talking about who Christ is, and the rest of this, uh, all the way to verse number seventeen, kind of deals with that. And we're not going to be talking about the um, pronouns in here about what applies to Christ and what applies to David's sons and stuff of that nature. That's a lesson for another day. What I want you to see is David's response. And it begins in verse 18. After this rebuke, God, I was just doing something nice for you. I mean, I saw a need and I was trying to fill it. And didn't the one missionary one say that you know, if we devote our heart totally to the Lord, then whatever we do, God will bless it. And and I, that's all I was trying to do here. And then you chastised me, God, by calling me twice your servant, and you said that that uh. Uh, no, uh, you're not going to be the one that builds the temple, David. I have ordained somebody else to do that. And have I ever, ever, ever asked anybody to do that? Why in the world do you think you can take that upon yourself? So David's troubled. Verse 18, it says, Then King David went in and sat before the Lord, and he said to him, Humbly, who am I, O Lord God? And what is my house that you have brought me this far? Recognizing what God has done for him. And yet, this was a small thing in your sight, O Lord God, for you have also spoken of your servant. Wow. So, God calls David twice my servant. And now David has picked up the vernacular and he now calls himself his servant. And he does that 10 times. 10 times you have also spoken of your servant, verse 19. Verse 20, um, and what more can David say to you? For you, Lord, know your servant. Verse 21, your servant. Verse 25, concerning your servant. 26, your servant. 27, your servant is listed twice. 28, your servant. 29, your servant is listed twice. And it's all of a sudden now we read this and it kind of means nothing. You know, God calls him my servant during a rebuke. And then David now picks that vernacular up and says, Well, I'm your servant. I'm your servant. It's your servant. It's your, I'm using your words, God. This is exactly who I am. And when you read this, you kind of just gloss over it because it doesn't seem to mean anything other than. David's becoming very humble before the Lord, recognizing he's his servant, until you ask yourself, did David ever in the past call himself God's servant? In his history with God, does he use the phrase, my servant? And by the way, the answer is yes, and you'll find that in 2 Samuel chapter 20, or 1 Samuel chapter 23. I think you'll find this kind of amazing. Chapter 23, David is getting ready to save this city. He's in the middle of turmoil right now. Saul's trying to kill him. They're trying to trap him to figure out where he's at right now. And so David goes to this particular city, and he wants to inquire of the Lord, and he's not sure what to do. Verse 6, so it happened that Abathar, the son of uh, Amalek, fled to David at Keilah, that he went down with an Ephraim in his hand, and Saul was told that David had gone to this particular town. So Saul said, God has delivered him into my hands, for he has shut himself in by entering into a town that has gates and bars. Then Saul called all the people together for war to go down to that city to besiege David and his men. David's in trouble. David needs some help. So when David knew that, that Saul plotted evil against him in verse 9, he said to Abathar the priest, bring the Ephraim here. And so David said, and here's his prayer, O Lord God of Israel, your servant. Wow. First time he's mentioned that. Your servant has certainly heard that Saul seeks to come to this town and destroy the city for my sake. So I have a question. Will the men of this city deliver me into his hands? Will Saul Come down as your servant has heard twice, O Lord God of Israel, I pray, tell your servant three times. Tell tell your servant three times, and the Lord answered, and he answered very abruptly, he answered very curt. There's no encouraging words here. There's no like, I will always be with you, David. You're a man after my own heart. I promised a covenant with you. I will establish your house. I will be with you wherever you go. Just have faith in me. None of that. He simply says, okay, sends a little tweet and said, he'll come down. That's not really encouraging. Okay. And then David said, Will the men deliver me? And my men into the hands of Saul, and instead of trust in me, keep your heart focused on me, I will show you the way to go. He answers the question like this: They will deliver you. And so David and his men, about 600 of them, fled, and Saul and his thousands of soldiers heard about that and decided they wouldn't trap David in that town. I don't know about you, but I almost pick up this, I don't know, kind of a curtness with God. Here is David crying out to God as your servant. God, I'm your servant. I belong to you. Everything I have has belonged to you. So therefore, answer my question. Question answered. i got a follow-up question. How about this one? Yes, yes, they will turn you over. They will not defend you. Then let's get out of here, guys. And and we don't hear of David being referred to as God's servant until chapter 7. Turn back to chapter 7. God uses that phrase twice, and David repeats it ad nauseum 10 different times. Almost like, what, 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 what are you doing here, David? So what does it mean? What does the word servant mean? You know, in the Hebrew, uh, of course, it's a different word than in the Greek, but if you go back to Septuagint, which is um, the... Greek translation of the Old Testament. You get all that on Blue Letter Bible, by the way. There's nothing exotic about that. You will find that the word here is doulos. It's the exact same word that is translated slave in the New Testament. But our Bibles never translate it slave. They always translate it servant. Paul, a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ by the will of God to the saints at Ephesus. And on and on and on, it's always you know, a servant, a servant, a servant, a servant. Never the word slave, because slave has negative connotations. The newer translations of the Bible, we don't want to talk about slaves, because when we talk about slaves, we think of roots. That's probably post states many of you guys. It was always black slavery, you know, always the whipping post, and it was always, you know, something horrible and taking families up and all the negative part of slavery and, You know, the slave trading ships and all that kind of stuff in Europe and over in America and, you know, Wilberforce fighting against that his entire life. And it's just a negative connotation that we never use the word slave because slave is something none of us wants to be. Servant is different. Servant is easy. Servant is something that's acceptable. Servant is something we're used to. I go to a restaurant and the person that comes and takes my order and delivers my food is called a server. They're coming to serve me. They are paid to serve me. I give them my order. They take it. They bring it back. They get a tip. They make some money. I don't own them. They can quit. They don't have to do a good job. There's no reprisal for that other than the fact that maybe they would lose their job. It's a voluntary position that while I'm working at some steakhouse, I'm serving. That's my job as a serve. But when I'm not there, I I can do anything I want with my life. A slave, totally different. As a matter of fact, if you look the term up in the Greek, and I've shared this with you before, the phrase doulos that is used here and used in the New Testament means this. It is a permanent position of servitude. Permanent position of servitude. In the Old Testament, if you were a slave, and the year of Jubilee ran around or something happened where you were given your freedom and you were married to a <clears throat> to a woman who also belonged to the owner of the estate or whatever and had some children, you were allowed to go free. But if you loved your master and loved your family and you wanted to stay as a slave in that family, what you would do in the Old Testament is you would agree to do that. You would then uh, go, they would take you uh, to the city gate and they would take your ear and they would stick a... An awl in your ear or an earring, just so you guys know exactly what that means biblically. They us like an earring in your ear and it would be a sign to everyone that you were a free individual who has chosen to place themselves under a permanent position of servitude to somebody else because of love. That phrase is bond slave in the New Testament. You know, it talks about a, a voluntary slave that somebody decided to become, I am free and yet I have taken myself and placed myself under the lordship of someone else. A doulos is a permanent position of servitude, and it means that the will of the slave is totally subjective and to- subjected to and totally consumed in the will of the master, which means a slave has no will of his own, A slave doesn't make decisions on his own. A slave simply asks the master what the master wants him to do, and the master then relates to the slave exactly what the instructions is, and the slave is then therefore judged either a good slave or a bad slave based on his dependence on the master and his obedience to his words. Foreign concept to us in America. Foreign concept in the church, but that's what it means biblically that I have surrendered my life to Christ. That as Paul said, I no longer live, but now Christ lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, my freedom to do what I want, I now live for the glory of him. It's a decision that I made when I followed Christ. It's the decision that It's the identity that God placed his children under in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. I don't want to be a slave. Well, why? Because your way is higher than God's? Because you think you can do more with your life than God can do through your life? That for some reason you refuse to bend your knee to anyone, including Christ? That puts you in the same position as Satan. And Jesus said that a day will come when every knee will bow, when every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is sovereign, is Lord, is ruler, is commander, is chief and king. So here's David, a man that is prone to going his own way. A man is just like me and probably just like you that uh, has had successes and failures has done things that uh has, has gotten him out of some jams by acting crazy in the camp of a, a, an enemy for example and and this you know deceived all those people and had to do what he had to do and for some reason even during all of that god necessarily elevated to him the position of king and because of his own wits and because of his own abilities he was able to accomplish some great things god blessing david rather than David surrendering to God and God doing all the work. And then all of a sudden, he gets in a jam, and he's afraid, and he can't figure out what to do. So he comes to God, and he asks God, Lord, uh, um, no, I have a question. Will you, will you please answer that question? I mean, after all, I am your slave. I, I, I've always followed your instructions. I, I do everything that you want me to do. So here I am, God. Are, are they going to come and, and attack? Yes. They are, are, are the people going to defend us or are they going to turn us over to Saul? They're going to turn you over. Oh, and so he heads out again. Was that God's will? Who knows? Nobody asked God. He simply asked a question and he, appe- he appealed to God based on something David's life has never indicated that he was, a slave. No, I'm king. I appreciate what you've done, God. I I, 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 just, I marvel at all the things you've done. I mean, who am I? Who am I that you would... Do this to someone like me and 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 then promise to to build my house and my legacy to the point that you know even Jesus sometime in the future will will trace his lineage through me. I mean that's just incredible God, but nevertheless, if I want to look at Bathsheba, I'm gonna look at Bathsheba. If I'm gonna kill Uriah, I'm gonna kill Uriah. If I'm gonna lie to the people, I'm gonna lie to the people, I'm gonna do what I have to do. This is just who I am. If I'm gonna have a son, You know, then I'm going to teach that son to be a slave, and no, I'm not I'm going to teach my son to be a king, and if he wants to violate your word and go multiply horses and golds and wives and concubines, which your word clearly says not to, he's going to do that too, because that's just how we live. God, I don't want you to be the controller of my life, I just want you to bless my life and get me out of a jam, and when I'm really caught in a jam, then I'm going to appeal to you as your son well, I'm your son, God. Can you kind of help me out with this? And then you notice God's response to him, at least in my interpretation, is kind of short, kind of short. There wasn't like this, Ah, oh, it's okay, David. I got you, son. I got you. Always trust me. No, it's yes. Yeah. Anything else you want to know? So in chapter seven, David decides he's going to do something else. I'm going to call the shot. God, I don't, I don't really, I didn't ask you what your will is. I didn't ask you whether you wanted me to be the, build a temple or somebody else. I didn't ask you whether you want your people in this land or somewhere else. I didn't ask you anything. It seemed like a good idea to me because I am an, a Westerner. And so what I decided is I'm going to go ahead and uh, you know, I'm going to do something good for God. God needs a blessing. So I'm going to bless God. And God slaps his hand something fierce. And even Nathan the prophet gets sucked up into all this. Yeah, whatever you want to do, David, it's fine. I ain't got time for this. Go and tell, God says in verse 5, my slave, who's forgotten he's my slave. Go and tell my slave that I did not ask you to build the house. Verse 5, go and tell my servant, my doulos, my slave, whose will is to be totally submerged in me, who's supposed to be in a permanent position of servitude. Thus saith the Lord, will you build a house for me to dwell in? I haven't dwelt in a house since the day I first took Israel to be my, my own. I haven't done any of that and yet you think that somehow that's going to honor me? What's going to honor me, David, is for you to remember who you are, to remember your identity. And your identity is not king. I placed you there. Your identity is a servant and a slave of mine whom I have blessed greatly. Question two, David, verse seven. Just think, when have I ever, ever from eternity past told anyone anyone that i want to be i want my my spirit to dwell in a building that you build that's never happened in the since the history of mankind and yet you decide on your own that that's what you're going to do well i know but it just seemed like a good thing god i mean we want to honor you and we want to we want to sacrifice to you and we want to We want to do things good for you. Yes, but the best thing you can do for me, David, is to recognize who you are. And in verse 18, David goes and he sits before the Lord. It's believed he actually went in where the Ark of the Covenant was. And he sat and looked at the representation of where God was to meet with his people between the cherubim, the Bema seat, and he sat there, and he pondered, and he talked to the Lord. And he said, Lord, I, you have blessed me immensely. You've done things in my life that I can't even imagine. And, and I know, God, they're, they're huge to me, but they're just a small thing to you. And, and here I am wanting to build you a house, and you have said that you were going to build me a dynasty, build me a legacy. You were going to do all that kind of stuff. And And you've made Israel for you. They're your people. And you put them on your land. And and they're they're a nation that's going to follow you. And you are their God. And and I'm not even a factor in this. And so, God, I'm recognizing um, my identity. And I'm going to share it with you 10 times. And I don't know if. David was trying to convince God that maybe he really felt that way, or maybe David's heart was broken to the point that he just kept reiterating this. It's like when you do something really bad, and you ask for forgiveness, and you're given forgiveness, but it's not enough. And you ask again and again and again and again and again, God, I've already forgiven you. Can you stop? I know, I just feel so terrible about it. Maybe that's what David does for 10 times. It's your servant. I'm your slave. I'm your slave. That's who I am. My identity is not as king. My identity is tied up in being your servant, your slave. And Lord, because I'm your slave, you have chosen, and you could have chosen someone else. You've chosen to raise me up to this level like it was nothing to you. And and the only way that I'm faithful in that is to recognize who I am as your doulos. I don't know about you, I'll be candidly blunt. I don't like that phrase. I don't like slave at all. I would want my people to serve me and, you know, kind of do what they want and then if they get in a jam, then maybe I'll kind of help them out and And then we can glorify God because I made the decision and, you know, the rewards come to me, but I didn't do it on my own. I, I just want to thank the big man upstairs. I just want to give the Lord Jesus Christ all the power and glory and all that kind of stuff. And then go on and talk about all the accolades that I get. It seems like in our culture, that's kind of what works for us. And God is reminding David of your identity, your identity. You are not an independent contractor. You are not someone who picks themselves up from their own bootstraps. You're not someone who calls his own shot. That's not who I created you to be. If you remember correctly, I said that I would not make you better. I would put you to death. You would die. Matter of fact, that's what baptism symbolizes that you are now dead and buried. The old Steve is buried. His desires, his wants, his futures, you know, his, his perceived rights is dead. And I will raise you into a new life. I will give you a clean heart, a new heart that sees only me. You will be my slave and I will be your master, but not just a slave like in the negative sense, but you'll also be like a son, that I'll love you like a son, like the Old Testament imagery of that. If a man doesn't have a a male heir to leave his estate to, then the the, uh, firstborn son, uh, slave in his house has that right to be treated as a son and adopted into the king's family. And what he requires of us, what he wants of us more than anything, is obedience and a yielding to his sovereignty. David figured it out and then forgot it. Kind of like I do a lot. Yes, God, you're king and you're sovereign. I understand who I am. I understand who you are. And so therefore, you know, Karen and I were uh, talking about an issue. uh, Maybe it was this morning or last night and that we can't really fix. And so Karen said, well, we'll just have to turn it over to the Lord. That sounds so easy, doesn't it? Yeah, what does that mean? Well, we just have to trust God with it. But we never do. We trusted and then still we manipulate, we trust him, and then we still worry about it, we trust him, and we still just petition him with prayers all the time, like he hadn't heard us the first time. And and you know, if we really understood our identity as a slave, God, whatever happens in this situation, that's up to you. So I can't dictate what works better for me or other people that I love. I mean, that's up to you. I, I'm sharing my request with you. I'm trusting you, God. There's a need over here. If you choose to meet it, that's fantastic. If you choose not to meet it, that's on you because I don't judge you. I just follow you and adore you and obey you and yield to you in your sovereignty. And the difference between fret and worry And having that peace that passes all understanding is when you understand your identity in him and your identity in him from the old and the new Testament is first and foremost as not his servant who does good things for him when you feel like it, but as his slave to come to him as a little child trusting and open and and listening to what he has to say, and then following him wherever he sends us. So Lord, how do we wholly surrender to you? What a hard thing to do. When I'm an independent contractor, when I'm somebody separated from God, when I'm going to serve you when I want to, and not serve you when I'm not, when I'm just a regular Christian in America today. And therefore I want to surrender something that I fight against my own free will, my own desires, my own wants and my perceived rights. I'm going to surrender that to him and leave it there as long as I can. Then I'm going to snatch it back because God, I've got to deal with this over here. And And because my identity is not submerged in Him, my identity is separate from Him, and by my own volition and maybe guilt and desire, I'm trying my very best to work contrary to my identity of independence and make myself dependent on Him, that when I realize my true identity is a slave of His and a son of His, then I just naturally respond like a slave and a son. Hey, I have a question, God hey, I have a desire, God. Hey, I don't know what to do, God. Hey, you need to show me what you need me to do, God. And if you don't respond when I think you need to respond by, I'm going to wait. I'm just going to rest. I mean, the totality of Oswald Chambers, my utmost for his highest, basically can be boiled down to that, that you figure out what... uh, What God wants, and then you respond to Him in love and obedience and faith. The totality of experiencing God by Henry Blackaby is the fact that you figure out where God is moving and you align your life with God. You surrender and submerge your life with God. And then whatever He's doing, no matter how it affects you, is always good and always best because He is God and we are not. And it all has to do with a change in us mentally understanding who our identity is in him. Does that make sense? I'm going to close by asking you to turn to Psalm 51. Lord, I haven't lived that way. I know I need to live that way. I'm not sure what I should do, but I'm going to trust you in all of this. So here's my prayer, beginning in verse 10. Lord, I I want you to create out of nothing, to create ex nihilo, to create in me a clean heart, a pure heart, an undefiled heart, a heart that doesn't have selfish interest, a heart like it was when when I was first born again, a heart that pants after you. Lord, would you create in me a clean heart, O God, And then would you renew, would you make better, would you rejuvenate or renovate a steadfast, firm, upright spirit in me? Would you create in me a clean heart, and then would you give me the determination that I once had when I was first sold out to you to live a disciplined life staying submitted to you? Because, Lord, I know if you don't do that, then I, and like David and so many other people, will have my identity separated from you. I'll no longer see myself as a servant or a slave or a child of yours or a new creation. I'll see myself as an independent contractor who treats you like a god in a religion. And Lord, because of that, please do not take away from me the one thing that gives my life joy. Do not cast me away from your presence. Never put me in a position because of my own sin and my own rebelliousness and independence that I will no longer be able to see your face. And please, God, whatever you do, don't take your Holy Spirit from me. This is not a salvation verse. It's an intimacy verse. Never let me get to the point where I never feel your presence. 2 Samuel chapter 7, David cries out 10 times, after god reminds him of your position you go tell my slave that this is what i said because this is what i have planned for my slave and then david sits before the altar of the lord and he comes under this humble understanding of who he is and he keeps reiterating back to god 10 times in 14 verses i am your slave i am your slave I am your slave, I am your slave, until we get to chapter 11 and chapter 12, and then he blows it, just like we've done before. Lord, what I need is for you to give me something I haven't had in a long time. I've had it in the past, but I don't have it now. I need you to restore, to bring back to the front and center the joy of your salvation, the joy of knowing you, the joy of having an intimate relationship with you. Lord, would you do that for me? And would you sustain me and hold me up by your bountiful, generous, just altruistic spirit? If I want to recapture my identity to understand who I really am in him, the answer is in Psalm 51 in verses 10 through 12 in the type of prayer that we pray. And it's a prayer of contrition. It's a prayer of acceptance. It's a prayer of of humility and asking God to do things in us that we simply cannot do ourselves. If you want to have a deeper relationship with him, I have learned, especially this week, stop striving and just abide. Just rest in him. It's really simple. God, uh, I acknowledge you as my master, and I want to acknowledge myself as my identity. as not being Steve McCraney's calling his own shots, but to be Steve McCraney, your slave. I want to take the time to ask you what you want me to do with decisions that I've always made on my own, made it myself, because after all, God gave me a mind. He expects me to use it. I can't be totally dependent on someone else. That's the absolute opposite. Of what the Christian life is truly all about. To be totally surrendered to Him, to rest in Him. Without me, Jesus said in John 15, you can't do anything. My job is to stay connected to Jesus as a vine to a branch, and all the fruit that I bear comes from the vine. It doesn't come from the branch. We just get to bear it. And if I separate myself as a branch from the vine, God says I'm worth nothing, and I'm gathered up into a pile and burned. It's really It's really that simple. It's just very hard. Does that make sense? Because it goes against everything in us. And so what do we do? God, I can't strive anymore. I can't make myself better. So Lord, you're going to have to create in me a clean heart and a pure heart and an undefiled, unselfish heart. Would you do that for me? Would you change me from the inside out? And Lord, would you renew in me the kind of spirit that sticks to it, that stays committed to you, the steadfast right spirit in me? And God, please, when you do that, I don't want to fall prey to having your Holy Spirit removed from me or not experiencing your presence anymore. So, Lord, what I need to help me wake up in the morning, remembering what you've done for me, would you restore like I once had in the past, maybe that 1 to 10 scale, would you restore unto me the joy, the giddiness of being your child? And Lord, would you renew? Would you uphold me? with your generous, bountiful spirit. And then I don't have to worry about anything because I've nestled into your arms and you'll take care of everything else. Amen? It all comes from a change of our identity in our own mind. And once you see yourself different and you have your mind, you have your life transformed by the renewing of your mind, seeing yourself as who you really are, Then you'll be able to determine what God's perfect will for your life is. And when you're in the center of his will, things never get better than that. Let me pray.